Back in 1936, Britain launched one of the most impressive vessels to ever sail the seas as the RMS Queen Mary. Over 1,000 feet long, 81,000 tons, twice that of the Titanic. And it was the beginning of the era of the luxury liners, and her commission was to ferry passengers from England to New York in style, much like the Titanic. But not long after, World War II broke out, and the Queen Mary was repurposed to be a military troop transport. And throughout the war, she transported 750,000 troops to and from the European war zone. After the war was over, though, she was restored to her former glory and carried passengers throughout the 40s and the 50s back and forth from New York and England. But in the 1950s marked the beginning of the era of the jetliner, and crossing the Atlantic by boat was no longer in style. And when the 60s came, the Queen Mary was aging and no longer turning a profit, and so she was retired after 1,001 Atlantic crossings. This vessel was so special that instead of being scrapped or sunk, she was turned into a floating museum and hotel. And from 1967 through today, the Queen Mary still is permanently moored in the port of Long Beach. And I bet most of you have seen it, and maybe a few of you have even stayed there. But back in 1967, when the Queen Mary was being decommissioned and gutted, there's an interesting story concerning the removal of her smokestacks. Queen Mary has these three famous red-orange smokestacks, about 70 feet tall. And they were made of one-inch thick steel, and over the years they were repainted 30 times. But as they removed the smokestacks, they discovered they were nothing but shells. 31 years of salt, air, and heat had rotted away all the metal, and the steel interior crumbled away when they took the smokestacks off. But, amazingly, the 30 layers of paint remained, and they stood upright. They, they, they just were standing on their own. And the smokestacks obviously could not be restored, and the ones you see today are replicas. But it's really interesting to think about that for years, these smokestacks were like jewels in the crown of the Queen Mary, just accentuating her beauty. But the sharp orange-red paint was merely hiding an interior of decay. The smokestacks looked pristine on the outside, but on the inside they were completely rotten. And that's a perfect picture of precisely what Jesus found when he entered Jerusalem. The religious leaders of Israel, from the Pharisees to the scribes, the Sadducees to the priests, they looked great on the outside. They looked pristine. They appeared godly. They appeared righteous. Everyone thought, hey, if anyone's going to heaven, it's going to be these guys. But in reality, on the inside, they were full of hypocrisy, and unrighteousness. They were living a total lie. They believed that as long as they performed the right rituals and ceremonies, they said the right prayers, God would accept them, even though their hearts were were filled with unrighteousness and sin. They were sadly mistaken. And Jesus often rebuked them and called them out for their false worship and their hypocrisy. Matthew 23, for example, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Like the Queen Mary smokestacks, the Jews, they painted their tombs with this brilliant white paint, and they looked beautiful. On the outside, almost enough to make you forget that inside was nothing but literally death and decay. 
But that is the picture of the religious hypocrite. Great on the outside and dead on the inside. And that's the picture of Israel's religion during the time of Christ. Jesus pronounced many such woes on the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23. Do you know when he said that, by the way, in Matthew 23? He said that in Jerusalem, in the temple, during the final week of his life. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, the priests, they all knew Jesus was condemning them outright in front of the people and making them look terrible. Jesus was coming into their house, the temple, and making them look bad, and and that just couldn't stand. But you see, it wasn't their house. that, That was God's house. And lest there be any doubt in your mind what God thinks of such dead religious hypocrisy, He let them all know by destroying that temple. That was his own temple, his own place of worship, so to speak. But God let Israel and all people know that there's no room for hypocrisy in his worship. And forget the outside, clean the inside first, then come and worship him. But for now, Israel was being judged and hardened. And this judgment was evidenced by the temple's demise. Right after pronouncing all these woes, on the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23, Jesus, right after that, he says, regarding the temple in Matthew 24, he says, Do you not see all these things? And truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. The whole thing's coming down. You won't even know it existed. And a mere 40 years later, those words were precisely fulfilled. When the Romans, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, they so thoroughly dismantled and destroyed the whole city, but including the temple in Jerusalem, that you would never have thought it was ever a city or was ever occupied. And that's what God thinks of dead religious hypocrisy that makes a show of worship, but inside is full of of sin. This morning we're resuming the Gospel of Mark, and we witness another passage where Jesus similarly condemns Israel and her religious leaders Only this time it's a little different because he does so not so much through words, but through deeds. In two different scenes, Jesus acts out the same judgment that will befall Israel and her leaders. The passage we come to today is Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 21. You can turn there now if if you're not there already. And it's the cursing of the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. And I bet you, I bet you know that. I bet you're familiar with those passages or at least those stories. He curses the fig tree. He cleanses the temple. They're well known. But what isn't as well known is how these two events fit together. Because they occur back to back. In fact, the cleansing of the temple is found sandwiched between this story of the cursing of the fig tree. Most people, they don't get why that is. These are two seemingly unrelated stories. But we're going to discover this morning that on two separate occasions by his actions... Jesus was giving one and the same message, and that Israel was cursed. Jesus did not have a bone to pick with this fig tree, and he wasn't upset over the temple architecture. Now, that's not the point. Rather, his issue is with religious hypocrisy. And Jesus, through these two actions, he's revealing what God thinks about religious hypocrisy and how God reacts to religious hypocrisy and And neither are any good. 
But it's certainly a lesson for us to learn as well because religious hypocrisy was not confined to Israel. And even though the early church, they got it right, they championed the true gospel and saving faith and new birth, but still, it's so easy for people to fall into the trap of just going through the motions, getting sucked into the externals of religion, even biblical Christianity, and while missing the point. And Christians even today are not immune from the same type of religious hypocrisy that Israel was known for. And if this is how seriously God takes it, as we're going to see, well then certainly this is a lesson for us to heed as well. We want to beware of this same religious hypocrisy. That's, that's our aim this morning. We're going to make our way through Mark 11, 12 through 21. And we want to study this cursed tree and this cursed temple so that we might beware the curse that follows religious hypocrisy. It's really it's as simple as that. We want to study the, this cursed tree, this cursed temple, so that we might beware the curse that follows religious hypocrisy. So let's, let's jump into it. Starting in verse 12, we'll begin with, just number one, the cursing of the fig tree. The cursing of the fig tree. And let, let's start off verses 12 through 14. It says, On the next day, when they had left Bethany, he, Jesus, became hungry. Seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Let's stop there. Read this story. And if you find it a little strange, a little puzzling, then you wouldn't be the first. At first glance, many people are puzzled by this account. It begs many questions. Doesn't Jesus know whether or not this tree has figs on it? I mean, isn't he like omniscient? And why is he surprised to not find figs on the tree if it's not even the season for figs? And then why this harsh curse of permanent fruitlessness? Was he having a bad morning, just taking it out on the tree because he's hungry? And then most of all, we ask, well, what's the point of this? Why is this even in the Bible? What, is there like a lesson here? What's going on? Well, we need to take a closer look, of course, and figure some things out. Let's just start by getting resituated with the context. Jesus, he's, he's back in Jerusalem. He, he's finally arrived in Jerusalem. This is the last week of his life. We covered his entrance into Jerusalem, the triumphal or not so triumphal entry, last time in Mark, the beginning of chapter 11. He came into town on a Sunday or possibly a Monday. But when Jesus actually got to the temple during his major entry into the city, he got to the temple and then nothing, nothing happened. It's very anticlimactic on day one in Jerusalem. Look back at verse 11. Jesus entered Jerusalem and came into the temple and after looking around at everything, he left for Bethany with the twelve since it was already late. He finally arrives after all this time, this momentous occasion, and gets to the temple, and just nothing happens. Just turns around and goes back to where he's staying in Bethany. Now, as we'll see later, though, it was pretty clear he, he was scoping things out, silently observing the state of Israel's religion one last time. Either way, though, during this final week, Jesus never spent the night in Jerusalem. 
He always left town at night and went back to Bethany. It's a little town two miles away. It's on the southern slope of the Mount of Olives. That's where Mary and Martha and Lazarus lived. And Jesus likely stayed at their house. But that's, that's day one in Jerusalem. He comes, goes to the temple, looks around, and leaves. Basically, that's day one. Now, verse 12, though, this is day two of the final week in Jerusalem. This is the beginning of day two. Starts off with Jesus early in the morning leaving Bethany, heading for Jerusalem. Takes the same road, same route, only this time he gets hungry. It's important to remember that although Jesus was truly God, he was also truly man. And his humanity was 100% real. He had a full human nature, although unstained by sin. And that's why we see Jesus getting hungry and tired and thirsty. And during his time on earth, Jesus lived fundamentally as a man. Was he God incarnate? Yes. Did he lose a single divine attribute during his incarnation? No. But during his time, he willingly set aside the independent exercise of his divine nature. He chose to live just like us, such that his human nature limited or veiled his divine nature. So, for example, while he was on earth, was Jesus omniscient or all-knowing? Well, he never lost that divine attribute. So, so yes, he retained his omniscience. That didn't go away. But at the same time, while living on earth, he lived as a true man, such that his omniscience was veiled by his humanity. So, for example, when Jesus was two years old, he had to learn the alphabet, just like everyone else. And that's why Luke chapter 2, verse 52 says, Jesus, when he was 12 years old, was growing in wisdom and in stature, just like kids do, because he came as a true human. Yes, sometimes in the New Testament we see his omniscience on display, but he fundamentally lived as a man and entrusted the display of his divine nature to the Father's will. Jesus only ever revealed his divine attributes through the Holy Spirit's empowering as God saw fit. Anyway, that's just a little bit of background, but it comes in handy for a text like this because we see the divine nature of Jesus and his human nature just come together in this passage. And he approaches this tree, why? Because he's hungry. Like, like any person, he needs to eat to live. And he also, he wants to see if this tree has any fruit on it because he doesn't know. Just like us. At the same time, though, shortly thereafter, he taps into his divine omnipotence and he curses the tree and it supernaturally withers. And he did that because God, the Father, had a purpose for this miracle. And we're going to see that as we go on. There is a special purpose for this whole scene with the fig tree. And to get even closer to what's going on here, you need to know a thing or two about fig trees. And this helps explain why Jesus was even looking for figs if it wasn't even season for figs. Fig trees, they're deciduous trees, which means in the fall, they lose their leaves. They go dormant for the winter, and then the spring comes, the leaves come back, and then they grow to fruit. And fig trees, they go to fruit in about June. And that, that's pretty historically accurate because Jesus, he's in, he's in Jerusalem Passover, which is the end of March, early April, and it says it wasn't yet the season for figs, which makes perfect sense. It was about another month and change away for the season of figs to come. 
Although it is possible for some trees to be ahead of schedule. Some trees are are just different. For example, lining the parking lot of our church are several liquid amber trees. You see them every time you come, even if you didn't know what they were. And those also, they lose their leaves in the fall. I, I see them every day at work here, and I actually grew up with two liquid amber trees in my backyard. It's really interesting, though. At church, this past fall, one of our trees, the one right outside the building, didn't lose its leaves in fall. All the other trees, they turned yellow and then red and the leaves fell off. But that one tree, it stayed green and the leaves stayed the whole winter. And if you go outside later today, the other trees, they're just starting to get their leaves back, the green leaves. But this, the middle one, it's still full and lush and green because it never lost its leaves. Now, I figure you know, we have such a mild winter here that for some reason it just that tree wasn't triggered to go dormant. I don't really know. But it happened. And it's likewise possible for some fig trees to be different, to develop fruit faster than others. And how do you tell? They knew how to tell. You tell by the leaves. If you, if you see a fig tree, if like it's April and you see a fig tree and it already has leaves on it, like a full set of green leaves, that's an indication that fruit is already forming. And even unripe figs were edible. So here it was. It's late March. It's early April. Christ is on this road to Jerusalem. Matthew tells us there's just one tree. There's a lone, solitary fig tree by the road. And it stood out because it had leaves on it. It was in leaf. Verse 13 says it was in leaf. So even though it wasn't the season for figs, this tree gave the impression that it was mature and that it was bearing fruit. It looked good on the outside. So naturally, Jesus goes in for a closer look. You have to inspect. You've got to dig around the leaves a little bit to see if the fruit are there because they're they're not that big. And so it all makes sense. Knowing a thing or two about fig trees, it makes sense. He's going in to see, well, it looks like there should be fruit. Even though it's not the season, it's got leaves. Maybe we'll find some figs. So he goes in to examine. And when he gets close, though, what does he find? Nothing. There's no fruit. The tree gave the appearance that it was mature and fruitful, but there was nothing inside. Now, if this happened to you, what would you do? Well, probably nothing. You'd probably just move on. Yeah, okay, you're still hungry, you're disappointed, but it's not like you're going to cut the tree down out of anger. I mean, you're just going to move on. It's just, what do you expect? It's not even the season for figs. But Jesus doesn't just move on. And with apparent frustration, he curses the tree, saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. The tree, it looked promising for fruit, but it didn't deliver on that promise. So he curses it to perennial fruitlessness. And that's it. That's how this little first part of the story ends. It still leaves us with some questions, namely, why? Okay, well, like, what's the big deal here? Why is he doing this? What's the point? Is this an outburst of anger? He's just frustrated, had a bad morning? Or is he trying to teach something? And I think we know better. You know Jesus, he's probably trying to teach something, so what is it? There's a hint at the end of verse 14. The disciples, it leads us to believe something more is going on. It says the disciples were listening. Like they're paying attention. Although they don't say anything, they don't do anything. Nothing more is told to us. But it leaves us thinking there's going to be something more here. There's something that's going to come out of this. What is it, though? What's going on? Well, 
I'm not going to tell you yet, because the text doesn't tell you yet. We're going to keep going a little bit more. Maybe you'll discover on your own, because right after this, we, we enter Jerusalem. And we'll come back to the fig tree down in, in another verse. So keep in the back of your mind. You're going to see how this comes together as it unfolds. But I, I don't want to tell you just yet. You're going to wait. And for now, we're going to move on to number two, the cursing of the temple. So that's just a little episode, the cursing of the fig tree. And it's not resolved, but let's continue into the cursing of the temple. Because that's what the text does. It just moves right on without telling us much more. So let's keep going. Verse 15, Jesus gets to Jerusalem. He says, day two, and what does he do this day? He doesn't sit around. This day he gets, gets to work. Verse 15. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And let's stop there. This is the famous cleansing of the temple scene. In all the many movies and shows about Jesus now, this always makes it in. There's going to be a scene where he cleanses the temple, so everyone knows it. It's actually the second time he's done this. John chapter 2 tells us that at the very beginning of his ministry, three years prior, he similarly cleansed the temple of its false, vain worship. And here he's doing it again at the very end of his ministry, one more time, cleansing it of its vain worship. To really get a sense of what's going on, though, you could use some information about the temple, just like you could use some information about fig trees. So we're talking about the second temple. The first temple, Solomon's temple, was destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Seven years after that, some Jews returned from captivity and they rebuilt a second temple, but it was really is puny, it was pathetic. It was so sad that people wept when they saw it because it was nothing compared to the first. It wasn't until 20 B.C. when this second temple was expanded and renovated and made really big by King Herod. It took 80 years, this renovation. And he turned it into a massive complex. We're talking 30 acres. It dominated the city of Jerusalem. It's like the biggest thing around by far. And when you think of the temple... Don't think of one little building. It was a complex. It was a campus. There were several structures. At the very heart, of course, was the temple proper. This is a 15-story building, similar to the Old Testament tabernacle, just bigger. It had that special room, the Holy of Holies, remember? Separated by that veil, the same veil that was torn when Christ was crucified. Surrounding the temple proper was a court called the priest's court, that's where they had the, the altar that they performed many of the sacrifices on. Only priests could go this far. Surrounding the priest court was the Israelites' court. That's where all the Jewish men could go to worship, but not women. There was a separate court further out called the women's court. That's where women could go to worship. And at this point, you have all these structures and all these courts, and then there was a wall surrounding all that stuff, one wall around it. And separating the, the wall from the inside and the outside, still part of the temple, was the court of the Gentiles. The Gentiles were kept on the very outside. They had the biggest territory, but they were kept on the very outside. They could not cross that wall upon penalty of death. The court of the Gentiles was massive, like several football fields put together. It was big. 
And more specifically, when Jesus cleansed the temple, well, where exactly in the temple was he? The answer is the court of the Gentiles, that very outermost part. And we know this because that was the only area where such buying and selling was permitted. In fact, the Jews turned the court of the Gentiles into a marketplace on purpose. Here's how it worked. Every Passover, all the Jews were required to pilgrimage to Jerusalem, offer their sacrifice, their yearly sacrifice at Passover. But over time, the priests started to sell sacrificial animals right at the temple for convenience. And that makes sense. That way you don't have to travel 80 miles with, with an extra sheep. That sounds nice. That sounds very convenient, right? Of course, the priests made a nice profit off this enterprise, but they were providing a service for the people. Naturally, they were not going to store and sell these animals within the holy confines of the temple, so they turned the court of the Gentiles into basically stalls for animals. That's what it was. It was like a livestock yard. The high priests basically franchised out stalls in the court of the Gentiles, and they took a nice cut from that money. And in addition to this, during Passover, all Jewish men over 20 were required to pay a yearly half-shekel tax toward the temple to to keep the temple running. But foreign coins with their idolatrous images on them were not accepted. So they had currency exchange stations or tables where Greek and Roman coins were exchanged for Jewish coins and then you can go pay your tax with a Jewish coin. So you know, you go to the airport and the international airport, they have all those currency exchange booths. Same thing. And you can expect the same surcharge quite a high surcharge for making that exchange. And so once again, the priests, they had turned temple operations into big business. And Passover was their Christmas when it comes to making a profit. That's when they made all their money. And just to give you a sense of the scale, this might blow you away, but in AD 65, there's records that show during Passover in Jerusalem, 255,000 lambs were slaughtered. That's just one year. And that's just the lambs, not the ox or the doves. 255,000 lambs slaughtered in Passover. I mean, there are millions of people going in and out of Jerusalem during this time. So anyway, that's a lot of lambs. That's a lot of business. That's a lot of money for the Sanhedrin. That's the ruling body of Jews who governed the temple and, and just looked over all this stuff. So, so picture the scene as Jesus enters the court of the Gentiles, which is the temple complex, there weren't people praying and worshiping anywhere. There were people buying and selling. This wasn't a quiet, contemplative place of prayer and reflection. This was a noisy bazaar. Animals are noisy, and there were thousands of sheep and oxen and and doves everywhere. The noise would have been deafening. And Forget about the smell. I mean, the point is, this was supposed to be a place of worship, but as Jesus looked around, what you think he was seeing worship? No. As he says in verse 17, this was supposed to be a house of prayer for all the nations. For all the nations. And here was the court of the Gentiles. That's the only place Gentiles could go to worship in a, in a formal way, and yet they had turned it into like a corrupt county fair. That's probably what it felt like. Just animals everywhere, buying, selling, and who knows what else. So now you can probably tell why he's so upset, right? 
And was this the intended purpose of God's temple? No. And like Psalm 69 says of the Messiah, zeal for the Lord's house will consume him, and it did, in a righteous way. He was outraged at the false, hypocritical worship taking place in God's house. So as he enters the court of the Gentiles, which he entered the day before, looked around, but now he enters and he puts a stop to it. Now granted, this place was way too big for him to stop everything. He didn't. But where he was, he drove out as many buyers and sellers as he could. He overturned money tables. He stopped people from using the temple grounds as a shortcut to carry merchandise through the city, which many people did. He just started cleaning the house. And now look at verse 17. And as he was cleaning the house, he began to say to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. Now here, stop and think. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he cleansing the temple? Most people read this, they think Jesus, he's upset at all the, at the highway robbery, the extortion, the profiteering that's going on at the temple. But, but is that really it? So if the priests, if they just cleaned up their business practices, Jesus would be okay with all this? No, there, there's something more going on here. There's something else that is upsetting to him. And think about this phrase, this robber's den. What's a robber's den? That's not where robbers go to rob. That's where robbers go to hide out. It's their safe haven. It's their refuge. It's where they feel safe even though they have done evil. And that's what the temple had become. So many people at the time believed they could live however they wanted. They could do whatever they wanted. But so long as they offered their yearly sacrifice, they're good to go. And do you see the problem with this? The people, they weren't really serving God or following God. They were just living for themselves. And even though their lives were full of evil, hey, as long as you, you bought a nice lamb at Passover, you're good. You're even righteous. That makes you righteous. And so the temple became a sanctuary for wicked people who thought they were protected from God's judgment because they were going through the motions. And Jesus looked around and he saw nothing but dead ritual. These people were all hypocrites. They, they didn't really care about God or serving or following God. And don't misunderstand. Jesus, he's not against the temple or sacrifices. But even in the Old Testament, it was clear that your sacrifices meant nothing to God if your heart was far from him. God is not interested in people merely going through the motions. Even the motions he tells us to do, rather, first and foremost, he wants your heart. King David learned this lesson. He expressed in Psalm 51, verse 16. He said to God, For you do not delight in sacrifices. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. God wants your heart. But there is a place for the sacrifice. David ends the psalm by saying, then you will delight in righteous sacrifices. He understood, yeah, God commanded this, but it means nothing if your heart is detached. The whole sacrificial system was meant to be an act of genuine contrition and repentance among God's people who genuinely loved him from the heart, but they were just broken over their sin 
And yet Israel turned the system into a buy your way out of judgment system. You go ahead, just live however you want. Don't worry so much about your heart and your motives, but just make sure you buy a nice lamb at the temple and you're righteous. You're a good Jew. You're doing the right thing. And Jesus quotes Jeremiah 7, verse 11 here with this whole robber's den quote. And that's exactly what they were doing back then in Jeremiah's day. The people were living in total wickedness, but they kept offering sacrifices at the temple thinking it made, made everything okay. Everything was fine. They were protected from God's wrath because they did the sacrifice. But they were sadly mistaken. Ritual is not the answer for sin. And God showed them that his temple was no safe haven for unrepentant sinners by destroying that temple. First temple was wiped out. And guess what he's going to do with the second temple? Is any wonder that right after this or not long after this, Jesus predicts, that the second temple will likewise be wiped out, just totally wiped off the face of the earth. So here's a big point, which you have to realize here. Take this away. Jesus was not cleansing the temple. You, you always think of this passage as the cleansing of the temple. This was no cleansing. Jesus was not reforming the temple. When he left, they all went back to business, didn't they? He was not cleansing the temple. He was condemning the temple. He was cursing the temple. Like many Old Testament prophets, Jesus was acting out God's rejection of this people and their hypocritical worship. And sometimes actions speak louder than words. His real issue is not even the, the wicked business practices that were taking place at the temple. Really, it's, it's the entire hypocritical system that the Jews had made. None of this was worship. Everything going on, the buying, the selling, even the sacrifices, because of their hypocrisy, none of this was worship. And God was going to put an end to it, and he would. But of course, Jesus doing this and saying this didn't make Jews very happy. So look now at verse 18 in the text. The chief priests and the scribes heard this and began seeking how to destroy him. For they were afraid of him, for the whole crowd was astonished at his teaching. Of course, the religious leaders didn't get what Jesus was doing. They're blinded by their own hypocrisy. In their minds, they're just doing what they're supposed to do. Didn't God command them to offer these sacrifices? So how could Jesus be opposed to what God commanded? Of course, they failed to realize that if your heart is detached and you're full of wickedness and hypocrisy on the inside, you're going through the motions, doesn't matter to God. But it's really no surprise that they wanted to kill Jesus. I mean, come on, the Messiah, he's supposed to oppose Rome. And here comes Jesus, and he takes an axe and lays it at the foot of the temple. The Messiah would never do that. In a few more days, they would succeed in killing him. But not yet. For now, they're still a little too scared because he still had captivated the people for now. A few more days, Judas would play into their hands and they would get the, the scheme they needed to finally capture Jesus. But for now, Jesus won the day. When evening came, like usual, he went home for the night to Bethany and this brings day two in Jerusalem to an end. We get to verse 19, though, and this is where we, we return to that puzzling fig tree. 
So let's keep reading now. Look at verse 19. When evening came, they would go out of the city. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And this is where we're going to stop. But this is where we come full circle. We're back to that same fig tree that Jesus cursed the day before. The first time it stood out because it was lush and green and full of leaves. Now, the, the next day it stands out because it's dead. It's dried up, it's shriveled, it's withered, the leaves are brown, fallen off. The destruction was so complete and so immediate, it was an obvious miracle to the disciples. Trees are amazingly resilient. They don't just shrivel up and die overnight. That just doesn't happen. Even with a frost, it doesn't happen that quickly. But this thing was so dead so fast, it was a clear miracle. But we're still left with that question, why? Why did he do this? Why curse this innocent tree? It wasn't even the season for figs. It didn't do anything wrong. So why this curse and destruction? It's dead. Well, I left you hanging before, but now let me point out a few clues in the text that will give us the answer. First, you have to realize that fig trees, along with grapevines, well, was a common Im- image or symbol or type for Israel in the Old Testament. Hosea chapter 9, verse 10, for example, says, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your forefathers as the earliest fruit on the fig tree in its first season. Jesus knew that fig trees were often used as a symbol or type of Israel. In fact, in Luke 13, he told another parable about Israel that featured a fig tree. Now, the thing is, though, our text is not a parable. Jesus curses an actual fig tree. So, so what's up with that? Well, also in the Old Testament, God often had his prophets, instead of necessarily speaking a parable, he would have them act out a parable. So, for example, in Jeremiah 19, God told Jeremiah, hey, go, go get a clay jar. And then take this clay jar and then take the elders and the priests of Israel, lead them to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, that's where they committed lots of their gross idolatries. He says, once you get into that valley, take the jar and smash the, smash the jar in front of everyone. And it's, it's a pretty obvious message, right? This is what God is going to do to you for your wicked idolatries. And that, that was the message. And that's what Jesus is doing with this fig tree. He's acting out a parable. This is, he's using a real fig tree as an object lesson. The fig tree represents Israel. And as Jesus cursed the fig tree... So he is going to curse Israel. Still, though, you may have one more question. Oh, still, why? Why curse Israel now? Okay, if that's the case, why even even why is he doing that? Well, here's where a little bit of knowledge from Mark's gospel helps out. Because several times we've seen Mark do this. He tells a story within a story. It's called the, the sandwich technique. And it's done to really to accentuate that middle story, the meat. The bread, the outer story, highlights the meat, the inner story, and the two must be interpreted in light of one another. And Mark has done this several times as he's just recording what really happened. So let me just cut to the chase. All this goes to say that the cursing of the fig tree doesn't have anything to do with fig trees. This tree was an innocent bystander, but it's going to make for a good lesson. And that's the point. 
Rather, it has everything to do with the temple, which is the middle story. It's not about trees. It's about the temple and really about Israel's false hypocritical worship. Putting all together now, here's this tree. And this tree on the outside looked good. looked pretty good on the outside. It was full of leaves. It gave the appearance of being mature and fruitful. And that's just like Israel's religion. Hey, on the outside, they appeared flawless. The scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, the Sadducees, hey, they, they appeared righteous on the outside. They looked good from a distance. They went through all the right motions. But upon further inspection... There's nothing there. There's no fruit. On the, in, on the inside, this tree was empty, just like Israel's religion. And they were hypocrites. They honored God with their lip service, but their heart was far from Him. And in reality, the fig tree, just like Israel, was fruitless and therefore worthless. There's no value. They were all show and no substance. All leaf, no fruit. The tree gave the impression of having fruit, but none was found. And likewise, the temple gave the impression of having true worship, but none was found. And how does God react when he finds trees with no fruit? He cuts them down. He curses them. The fig tree, notice, it's not pruned. Jesus didn't try and fertilize the tree or water the tree. He just cursed it. It had its chance There's no fruit. It's done. And so it goes with Israel's religion seen primarily in the temple. There's no cleansing. There's no reformation at this point. The temple and even their religion is cursed, is condemned, will come to an end. You may be familiar with Matthew 7, verses 16 through 20. Jesus said, You will know them by their fruits. Speaking of false teachers, you will know them by their fruits. He says, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. And I trust you get the lesson now of what Jesus is teaching, both with the fig tree and the cleansing of the temple. Really, from the cursing of the fig tree to the cursing of the temple, Jesus was teaching the same thing. He was cursing dead religious hypocrisy. Israel was warned. They had their chance. But they did not make their hearts right with God, and so they were judged. If you get all this stuff, if it's coming together now, if it's starting to click, it makes sense what he's teaching, then it leads to one final question, one undeniable question. What about you? The church today is not immune to the same type of spiritual hypocrisy. There's still people who come to church, they go through the motions, even though on the inside there's nothing going on. Their heart and their lives do not belong to God, but they're living for self. Their lives are filled with evil deeds, but they look great on Sunday. They look great on Sunday. You would never know. You think they're a a great person, very godly on Sunday. Just don't look at them the other days of the week. They bear no fruit, and so they stand condemned. Is this you, maybe? 
And look, what, what's the answer to this? What is, what is the solution for spiritual hypocrisy? Maybe, maybe this is you. The answer is not to try and be perfect. There's always some people and they try and defend their hypocrisy by saying, well, look, yeah, well, but isn't everyone a hypocrite? Because no one's perfect. So are, are all people hypocrites in the church? Well, look, yes, it's true. No one's perfect. So in that sense, we're all hypocrites because we're not perfect. But that's missing the whole point. God knows we're not perfect. He knows how far we've fallen short. That's why he sent his son Jesus to die on the cross. Because he knows how extremely sinful and hopeless we are. We can't be perfect, although we need to be. So the issue of finding God's favor, it's not one of being perfect because you're not. It's not an issue of going through the right motions either because that doesn't matter. Instead, you can only find favor with God and be made right with God by his own grace and mercy, which comes through the channel of of Christ. That's why he came. Israel didn't even know he was offering them hope right before them, but they turned on him. The issue is you do need to be perfect, but you can't be perfect. The issue is not to try, per se, but but to look to Christ. Because through his work on the cross, he can make you perfect and righteous before God. He can justify you. The problem, though, for the religious hypocrite is that they don't really believe they need Jesus. They don't really need him. They're fine on their own. They're doing the motions. They're going to church. They read their Bible. They do the right things. They don't really need to give their life to Jesus and like deny themselves and all that stuff. They're deceived into thinking their religion, their, their practices will spare them from judgment, but they're sadly mistaken. Look, you and I, we need a Savior. Someone to pay for your sins. Someone to make you what you're not what you can't be, and that is righteous. And when you realize this, you realize your need for him. If, if you really get it, it will make you desperate. And that's the only type of people or person who finds Christ, who finds favor with God. It's not the proud, it's not the arrogant, it's not the boastful, it's not even the religious. It's the desperate, the humble, the broken, the needy. Because only those people realizing their desperation, just say, I I can't do anything, Lord, and they just cry out in faith for mercy. That is actually the only thing you can do. The only thing that God responds to. The only one who receives mercy is the one who, in humility, cries out for it. And they will find God's favor. I can't say it any better than Jesus did. In Luke 18, verses 9 through 14, you're going to know the story. Let me read it for you. Jesus told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So you know where he's going with this. This is a parable, he says, to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. He says, God... I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, went to his house justified, meaning made right with God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's fair to ask, which are you? Which are you? The fruit in your life, or the lack thereof, says a lot. But what matters most is the root. Examine your roots, your heart. You really see your sin before God. You see your lack, your desperation. And what do you do? Do you try and cover it up by going through the motions, doing the deeds, even things that God commands, things that are good, but you're counting in them to make you righteous, good enough? It's not going to work. Rather, in your desperation, do you just cry out by faith for mercy and for forgiveness? And only those find Jesus and find God's favor. So don't be among those who receive God's curse. We saw it with the cursed fig tree. We saw it with the cursed temple. Both were destroyed. But instead receive his blessing, his salvation, which comes only to those who seek him and serve him from the heart through his son who died for your sins. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Let's pray. Our God and Redeemer, we pray that you humble us, that we may be exalted by your grace. Pride, the root of that first sin, is still the enemy of our souls where we think much too highly of ourselves. Lord, we need to think accurately of ourselves, which is to think that we are, we are lost sinners, even depraved and corrupt in our very nature and will, and how we produce nothing but unrighteousness, how far we have fallen from you and, and your your own righteousness and holiness, Lord. Convict us of this. Continue to show us our sin. There's nothing better for us than a healthy dose of a look in the mirror, seeing how, how, how fallen we are. But I pray upon seeing that, Lord, we, we have the right response, which is to be humble and broken and to just cry out, Lord, help. Can you show us mercy and grace? We don't deserve anything from you but judgment, but can by your love, can you, can you just save us? And Lord, with confidence we can, we can celebrate because you have promised that if we say that, if we pray that, if we mean that, the answer is yes. You will look upon us with your favor, just by your grace, by, by the love that you've shown through Christ. We thank you for that. And if any are here who are continuing to trust in themselves and count in themselves for their right standing with you, break them. Show them it doesn't work. Going through the motions, it doesn't work because we're all at one point, dead on the inside. We need Christ to make us alive. And he only comes through through faith, giving him our lives. May we do that continually. And for those who have placed their faith in Christ, now, Lord, we may bear fruit. Help us to bear fruit for your glory. We want to live fruitful lives, passionately driven to serve you. And as we honor you and bear fruit for you, we pray you receive all the glory. The God who saved us, the God who is worth all glory. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.